We are continuing our look at the story of Abraham's life and asking God to give us direction from that life, challenge us and change us. Um, You may be familiar with this phrase, a trope. Now, for those of you who may watch movies or read books, a trope is basically a plot device. It's a common plot device. In fact, it's so common, it tends to become a cliché. And you watch movies, and you might even laugh how often it's used. For instance, a very common trope shows up frequently in spy or crime stories. Uh, You are familiar with it. Frequently, the spy is in the clutches of the villain. And instead of simply killing the good guy and getting away with it, the trope kicks in and the villain has to explain all of the details of his horrible plot. And thinking, I've got you and now you're mine. And he keeps on talking, not understanding. That's giving the good guy a chance to escape and destroy the plot and destroy the bad guy. Folks, it's used in every James Bond movie that's ever been made. Almost any crime story, as they start pouring out, this is what I'll do and this, and then all of a sudden, when he's bragging, his boasting turns into his downfall, and he is defeated. I've often thought in life sometimes it would be handy if people lived by tropes. If we could just look at somebody and by their actions or by, we could immediately discern, here is a good guy, here is a bad guy, and if they would just explain it all so we could see it, it would help. But we can be surprised. Sometimes the most evil people in this world seem to blend in almost invisibly until it's too late for anything to happen. So wouldn't it be great if somehow we could see who's less stellar in their intent, whose motivations may not be right? Well, while we rarely have antagonists who explain all the bad things they intend to do, the reality is there is a way for us to get insight into the inner workings of somebody. Not just listening to what their words say, but getting an understanding beneath the words. For instance, by their behavior, we may be able to tell, are they kind? Or are their lives most often seen in inflicting cruelty and harm to somebody else? Do they seem to really have compassion for people? They really care when people are hurting? Or do they tend to focus on the hurt being the blame of the person in pain? They are there because they did this. And therefore, I shouldn't have compassion. Does their love demonstrate itself in their actions? Or are their love seen only in words? Words that may in the end turn not to mean much. 
Well, this morning we're going to see, we're actually going to see two hearts revealed in our text. We'll see two men with very different intents shown by what they did. And what they did was make some choices. So in this morning's text, choices that are made revealed Abram and Lot to be two very different men. In this one little snapshot of their lives, they're approaching things extremely differently. So please stand as we look at the text. And we're going to hear Genesis 13, 2-13, the word of the Lord. Listen with both ears, with your heart, before God. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, and when he had first, where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling rose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between us, you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pinched his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now please understand, the idea that you're... you're heart can be revealed by your actions, isn't limited to Abram and Lot. The truth is, our choices in life can reveal who we really are. Now, how is that possible? How, how does the way I make a choice tell people who I am? Well, it does so by making my choice, I'm revealing the truth about what is important to me. I'm revealing what is crucial for me by the way I choose. And those truths will be readily seen by answers to a series of questions that grow out of our text. And so we're going to take a look at this idea, not just of two hearts revealed, but how about the hearts of everyone in here today? Our first question, Alan alluded to with his kids, How will we handle conflict? How will we handle conflict? And conflict is a reality in life for everyone. There is no such thing as a relationship where there's not conflict. 
fact, you have probably discovered conflict between people you love is a little bit more real than just casual acquaintances. But how will we handle it? We're going to take a look at what happened with Abram. He becomes aware there's a problem and immediately begins to move. Abram chose to take the initiative in settling a problem that grew between himself and Lot. Now, I mentioned last week, for those of you who are here, part of Abram's problems were all related to all of that wealth that he gained in Egypt. And this is one of those problems. The conflict occurred because of the wealth. And it's been pointed out rather significant. When you look at the text, it's the stress of the wealth of Abram, who we're told was wealthy in livestock and had silver and gold, and Lot himself, who had flocks and herds and tents. They both greatly prospered out of that bad choice in Egypt. And this led ultimately to jealousy and strife among the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. But Abram was very, very real in understanding what was going on. He instinctively knew this isn't just about herdsmen. Clive Francisco noted this was only the final act in the lengthy drama for For some time, events had been moving that way. Listen to what Francisco said. Close friends do not commonly agree upon a final parting because their respective servants have been quarreling. That's not what happens in life. You don't end the friendship with one of your best friends because two of your other friends have fussed. Something more has to happen. And I want you to notice what Abram said to Lot. One more time, listen to what he said. Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between our herdsmen. We are brothers. And the word for that, translated brothers in the NIV, means very close kin. Let's not be fighting. We don't need to do that. And so Abram then offered a solution. He recognized it was time to part company. Now keep in mind, not only did they have a lot of stuff, not only did their own flocks and herds make it hard to exist in this one place, but the writer points out the Canaanites and Perizzites were in the land. Now the Canaanites we come to know rather well in the Old Testament all the way into the book of Joshua and Judges, Israel still dealing with the Canaanites, we really don't know who the Perizzites were. We're just not real sure. But the point was, not only are Abram and Lot trying to live in one place, there are already people there, which makes it even more crowded. So recognizing it's time to part company, notice what Abram does. He goes to Lot and he says, we need to part. Where do you want to live? Abraham said, then I will choose to go where you don't. Okay. Yes, a bird. A lovely bird. Remember those distractions? Let's get focused. 
Abraham says, I'm going to take what's left. Now, you may have a translation and you may be confused because Abram said in NIV, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And your translation may say, if you decide to go north, I'll go south. Or if you decide to go south, I'll go north. The reason that shows up that way, and that's a legitimate understanding, because we look at maps like this, Israel looked at maps like this. And so the left would be to the north. The right would be to the south. So he's saying, wherever you choose to go, you can go. Now this is the first great reveal in an action that, we, that I want to focus on because it shows something about Abram. He was the head of the household. It was his right to make the decision about who got what. But Abram isn't focused on his rights here. He's not fighting about what I have the right. What he's concerned about is how do I keep a relationship with my nephew? You see, Abram is getting that point where he's really starting to understand God is going to take care of me wherever I'm at. So wherever he puts me, I know that God has a plan. But I need to make sure this doesn't destroy my relationship with Lot. So you choose, Lot. You choose. Now we need to understand that the child of God has a calling to be a bridge builder in the time of conflict. Folks, this is one of our tasks that God Himself has given us. How do I know this? Paul writing to the Corinthians, in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, says something very important in relation to this idea of bridge building. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against him, and he was committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Folks, you and I are called to try to help people find peace with God. You and I are called to show others the way to God. But it's not just trying to form reconciliation and bridges with the people who do not know God. There is another sense. It's about building peace within the people of God. Again, Paul writing to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I believe something very fundamental to our understanding is seen here. See, I believe in a world of strife and conflict, the church, the body of Christ, should be a safe haven, free 
of strife and anger and conflict that is destructive. The church should be a place we might disagree with one another, but our love is so strong we try to find a way to work together to find unity and preserve that within the body. I believe Paul makes a statement once about not grieving the Holy Spirit. I can't think of anything that would grieve the Spirit of God more. The one who comes into our lives to bring fellowship with God and each other. I can't think of anything that would grieve Him more than our fighting and fussing and feuding. And God is saying, you need to build bridges. And so, what we need to do today, we diligently need to seek to be peacemakers in this life. You and I need to take a strong stand. I want to follow the truth of my Lord when in the Beatitudes He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what I want to be, God, a peacemaker. So we ought to spend our time in prayer daily before God, asking God to direct our lives in such a way we can reach out to the people who need peace with God. We ought to pray daily that within our fellowship, our primary goal here at Bay Vista, and not just at Bay Vista, but also the way we reach out to others, we need to build unity and minister peace to God Almighty with His people among them. So, how is it? How do we find Abraham? Last week, he's lying about his sister to save his own neck. Last week, all he's concerned is about staying alive. How do we reconcile what happened with Abraham then, the deceiver, to be a man who's concerned about saving a relationship. How does that happen? The answer is found in our next revealing question, which actually takes us back to the first of the text. Will we be people who want to honor God? Will our hearts be focused on the idea of honoring God? Above every other lake. Is that what drives us? You see, when Abram gets back to Canaan, he roams around for a while and then he makes his way back and Abram chose to turn back to God at the altar he built between Bethel and Ai. It's when he gets to that altar we learned earlier, he called upon the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. He declared the name of God, the Lord, before the people of Canaan. So what we see when Abram comes back to Canaan, he comes back to a place of trusting the Lord. He comes back to a place of saying, God, I want to honor You. God, I want You to have control of my life. Yahweh, I want You to bless this world through the relationship that you and I have. Lord, I want You to be lifted up. So one more time, in our text, it's not just reflecting that He called upon the Lord back then. Now, once again, 
he calls upon the name of the Lord. He didn't go to Bethel and Ai for nostalgia. You know, we kind of live. There, there are many, most of us here, who remember when church was a little bit different a few decades ago. And almost every church had crowds of people long before COVID, back in the 60s and 70s. And we look back, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could have times like that again? And sometimes we look at nostalgia and we, we, we don't remember all the struggles back then. All we remember, oh, we had a lot of people. Abram's not interested in nostalgia. Abraham is interested in renewing his commitment before God. Once again, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And this doesn't suggest that Abram suddenly became perfect before God. We'll see other stumbles he makes along the way. It does recognize that this is a pilgrim journey. That our walk with God is a lifelong walk. And there will be times when there are problems. And there will be times Abram's faith will shine brilliantly. And brightly. But even in the moments when Abram stumbled, even when Abram made horrible decisions, and our first impulse is, what? He did that? Abram always returns to God. He always comes back to his Lord. So that ultimately at the end of life, he is able to meet the greatest test of his faith ever, and he shines brightly. Abram is giving his heart to God. And a heart committed to honoring God is crucial in the walk of faith. Crucial in the walk of faith. There was a group that met in England. They were known as the Westminster Assembly, meeting in Westminster Abbey from 1643 to 1652. It was during a time of civil war in England. And there were fightings about who would control what would be the the right religion of the day, what would be the one that the people would follow. And there were struggles and, and a great deal of strife and conflict. And the Westminster Assembly was given a task. Come up with a, a declaration of what we believe and come up with, with a way to teach people what we believe. And so the Westminster Catechism was born, as well as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the catechism, a catechism, we don't use them in Baptist life, but it's simply a means of teaching people what we believe. What is our greatest purpose? Our greatest purpose is this. How do we have faith? Our faith comes this way. The very first question of the Westminster Larger Catechism is, what is the chief and highest end of man? In other words, what should be the greatest purpose in a human life? The answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. You may not be reformed in your persuasion, but I'm going to tell you, you would be highly, hardly pressed to find a greater definition of what our ultimate purpose should be in life. To glorify God with all that we are 
and to walk in a loving, joyful relationship with our God throughout our lives. Folks, that's what we're here for. And everything else grows out of that love for God. We are called to honor God, to follow God, to serve God. And as we learn to do that, as we learn to commit ourselves in the times of struggle, in the times of fear, in the times of question, we commit ourselves to God, we learn not only how to serve Him, we ultimately learn how to serve others and touch people with the good news of Jesus Christ. But that's only going to happen. Honoring God is only going to happen through commitment. And so, we urgently need to focus our lives through the fear of the Lord. Now understand, when the Bible uses the phrase fear of the Lord, it's not, I'm afraid He's going to hit me with a lightning bolt because I didn't put anything in the offering plate. Fear of God has a very special meaning within the Word of God. And while there is an element of, uh uh-oh, remember Isaiah? Sees and hears about the holiness of God and says, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. But the main thrust of this, the fear of the Lord is a call for reverent commitment to the God who created and the God who redeems us. It means recognizing He must have first place in my life. That every other relationship is secondary to that. I must serve God and I must have reverence for Him and I must have a heart that worships Him and I must have a heart that says, Here I am, Lord. Make of me what You will. This must be the intent of our lives. To honor God with everything that I am. Because it is only as I learn to have a right relationship with God that I learn how to live my life among the people of this world. If my relationship with God is out of kilter, then so will be my relationship with you. We must have hearts committed to following God. So Abram shows us prime, a stellar image of a man whose heart is now committed to God. Committed to such a point, he's not jealous or worried about who gets the best land. Committed because he is now building altars again and honoring God and calling upon God among a pagan people. We've seen a heart of a man revealed to be godly in his intent by his actions. Now we finally get to the second man in our story. And one last revealing question we need to be willing to ask ourselves. Do selfish desires drive our lives? Do selfish desires drive our lives? I have to ask God, is that what drives me? You see, when we look at this story, it becomes clear pretty quickly that Lot chose only on the basis of what he wanted in life. That's that's why he makes the choice he does. 
All he wants is what he wants. We're told here that Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan Valley. He saw that the valley was lush, it was fruitful, it was well flowered, watered like the garden of the Lord. He's, he sees it and he's thinking, this must be what Eden looked like. When I read that text, it's hard for me not to think of another. It's hard for me not to be reminded of another moment in time when someone made a rash decision based on a look of desire. Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Eve falls to the temptation that the serpent has placed in her heart when she looks at the tree and the fruit says, I really want a piece of that fruit. Now, verse 13 shows us why this was a very unwise choice on Lot's part. Verse 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning very great, greatly against the Lord. Now in all likelihood, Lot's decision was logical to himself. Abram says, choose what you want. And he looks and he sees that the plain of Jordan is really a fertile place. It will have enough for his flocks. It will have enough for everything he needs. He can plant. He can do whatever he needs. It, this is a good spot of land and I want it. But also, Abram didn't seem all that interested in the plain of Jordan. In fact, we know that Abram's heart ultimately is in Canaan proper. So, it makes sense. Abram doesn't really want it. If he wanted it, he would have told me. And it's really great land. Francisco pointed out some serious flaws. First of all, Lot acted impulsively. If he had really thought this through, he would have realized Abraham is the head of this clan. He is the head of this household. Lot should have at least suggested well, Abram, you are the father here. You need to make the choice. And it never occurred to him. It never occurred that that would be the gracious thing for him to do. He also didn't think through the ultimate consequences of his action. In verse 12, we're told that he pitched his tents toward Sodom, toward Gomorrah. But as you read later in Genesis, when God is judging Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is no longer in a tent outside the city. He's right in the middle of the city. A city that is described being full of people who sin greatly against God. And while Lot is ultimately regarded as a righteous man, a man who did have relationship with God, it was so weak that in the moment of that when the angels come and warn, 
Lot has no influence over his sons-in-law. He tells his family, we've got to go, and they don't care. Even his own wife looks back in regret as they're moving away from the city. If he had thought it through, maybe he would have thought, you know what? Maybe Sodom's not a good place to have an address. You see, in short, Lot's decision did not take Abram or God into consideration. Just there, as there is nothing in Abram's story of going into Egypt that suggests he asked God should he go, there's nothing in this story that suggests that Lot sought the wisdom of God. He knew what he wanted and he took it. Because it was all about what Lot wanted. And there would come a day he would regret the decision. Folks, we need to understand that living by selfish desire ultimately proves to be destructive in life. I told you I am, I am of that generation where self-help books got really going quickly, fast, and furious. Uh, where I am of the generation bumper stickers that had things like, don't get mad, get even on them. One of those self-help books was Looking Out for Number One, and it sold a lot of my, I mean, it's a lot of books. Looking Out for Number One. Well, folks, my main concern in life is getting what I want. If I am looking out for number one, that means I will ultimately turn away from the needs of other people. Because the needs of other people aren't important. What I want is when I have the attitude of my will be done. I want things to go the way I want. That becomes my unspoken motto because most of us in this room would never actually have the nerve to say out loud, my will be done. But if we choose to live our lives like that, we'll no longer focus on our Father who is in heaven, may His will be done. May Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even the good that I do, probably should use air quotes, but I don't like being cliche, the good that I would do is often tainted by selfishness that motivates it. Am I doing good so people will notice? Think what a great guy am I? Or am I doing good so I will garnish favors? I scratched your back and I, when my back needs scratching, you better be there for me. Without wanting to be too cynical, I want to point out a well-stated quote by John Dixon. Somehow for all the wonderful, wondrous glimpses of goodness I see in society, and he does put that in quotes, there remains the unmistakable stain of selfishness 
violence and greed. I cherish every act of kindness I see in this world. But I'm also aware there are many, 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 many acts of selfishness. Tertullian was the church father, an an able apologist. Uh, He wrote in the third century a defense of the faith. Uh, He wrote an incredible book and sent it to the Roman Empire telling them, you need to quit persecuting us. And gave all the reasons why. One of the reasons I love reading Tertullian, he had a very biting wit. And I kind of like that. And he once made the statement, he who lives only to benefit himself confers a benefit on the world when he dies. If all I'm concerned about is getting what I can get, the world's not going to miss me too much when I'm gone. Folks, when we are driven by our desires alone, without taking into consideration God, without taking into consideration how it may affect other people, we fall way short of what God is calling us to be as His children. And so, we carefully need to put selfish motivations out of our lives. Now, I am not even going to begin to pretend that anybody, everybody in this room always works 100% out of pure motives. Not even I do that. None of us do. They're always tinted, some, by this struggle of overcoming the old man and, and living for God. But we need to start turning to the Spirit of God and asking Him, please, Holy Spirit, help me to change my motivations. Help me to change what I want. We read a passage today in our responsive reading that said, when we honor God, He will give us the desires of our hearts. Well, folks, the truth is, when we trust God, the desires of our hearts begin to change. We need to ask, change me, Lord. If we hope to grow in our faith, if we hope to walk after God in such a way that our lives will be a beacon in a dark world, we must take the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to heart. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We need to start asking God to help us really understand what I want is not the most important thing. In my life, what God wants for me becomes what should drive my life. If we are willing, seriously willing to ask ourselves these questions, what do I do with conflict? Am I trying to build bridges or am I lighting fires? 
does my heart seek to honor God? Do I really want to honor God with the way I live? Am I guilty of wanting only what I want? Of giving in to my will? Because somehow I think I know it's best. Can anyone answer these questions in such a way that they will actually reveal godly lives? Is it possible for someone to actually live a life while there will be stumbles along the way, their life, the overarching message is, here is a person who loves God, here is a person who loves others, and it's shown not just by what they say, but what they do. I believe it's possible. And if we're willing to ask the questions and honestly deal with the answers, I believe when godliness is revealed in our lives, we can change the world. We can change the world. John Chrysostom wrote in the 4th century. If only 10 among us be righteous, the 10 will become 20. The 20, 50. The 50, 100. The 100, 1,000. And the 1,000 will become the entire city. And when 10 lamps are kindled, a whole house may easily be filled with light. So it is with the progress of spiritual things. If but ten among us live a holy life, we shall kindle a fire which shall light up the entire city. If just a handful of those who say Jesus is Lord mean it, we can have an impact on the Gulf Coast that the world would say is impossible. But the question is, will we be those people? Today, are you willing to pray to God, Lord, change me? If you recognize in yourself that you have got your life all figured out and you've not really talked to God about it, because it's all about what you want. Will you say, God, change my motivation? If you are the kind of person who likes to light a fire instead of build a bridge, God, help me with my anger. Help me, help me understand that peace with my brother or sister is more important than me always getting my way and being right. Are you willing to pray, Lord, make me a holy person, committed to you, letting your spirit move in me and change me. Let me, O oh God, honor you. that happen, if just a few 
on the Gulf Coast gets serious. God can multiply that and change our world. Would you bow before God? This morning, you're here. You've come ostensibly to worship God. I have told you more than once, if you leave this building the same as you came in, you have not worshipped. Because encountering God changes people. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, open yourself up to God. Honestly, answer the questions that were asked today. And by those answers, know, am I where God wants me to be? And if the answer is no, then right now ask God to change you, to move in you.